arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. What kind of society would have been able to send a signal from trillions of miles away? To answer this, astronomers often point to the Kardashev scale, developed in 1964 by Russian astrophysicist Nikolai Kardashev. He believed that advanced civilizations could be categorized by the amount of energy they collected and utilized, from type 1 to type 3. Today, there are numerous interpretations of the Kardashev scale that expand on his original meanings to account for advances in science and our own understanding of the world. On Earth, we derive most of our energy from burning fossil fuels, and we aren't yet far enough along to even make it to the Type 1 level, which is a civilization capable of harnessing all of the energy available on its own planet through solar, thermal, volcanic, tectonic, and oceanic energy. This civilization would be able to control natural forces like the climate and earthquakes. Its energy production level would also be 100,000 times more powerful than Earth's current state. A Type 1 civilization near HD 164595 could aim a signal directly at our solar system by harnessing more than a trillion watts, which is about the total energy consumption of all of humankind. Then comes Type 2. This civilization would be capable of controlling the energy of its host star. To do this, they might build what's called a Dyson Sphere. This is a megastructure that would enclose the star and harness its power. A Type II civilization near HD 164595 could broadcast a signal in all directions, not just at our solar system, by harnessing 100 billion billion watts of power. A Type III civilization is the most powerful on the Kardashev scale. It can control and operate on the energy of its entire galaxy. This could be made possible through countless Dyson spheres. This type of civilization would use energy equal to all the starlight produced by one galaxy. Some scientists, not to mention sci-fi writers, have later developed classifications for Type IV and beyond. These civilizations would have the power to harness so-called extragalactic sources such as dark energy. Though the late legendary Carl Sagan once wrote, quote, there is no provision for a type four civilization, which by definition talks only to itself. In other words, it would have no interest in trying to establish contact with a civilization as insignificant as ours. But in the end, all of these models could very well be null and void anyway. If aliens do exist out there, they may be way beyond anything we would ever be capable of imagining ourselves. The Wall Street Journal blurb you just heard is exceptionally good, scientifically instructive, and I like it. What's always missing from pure scientific evaluation is the human or even the alien equation. How rational are our instinctive feelings and notions about certain things? More about that later. Loftus is battling within the Bathurst complex. What he thought was true about so many things turns out to be confabulation. And Bathurst itself is on the cusp of something that stretches the mind. Here is episode 6 of Sojourn Desperado, starting right now. 
Chapter 36. In military matters, Loftus had learned to take the prudent course. He minimized risk by averting the elevator and returning to the staging area via the stairwells. Loftus had 18 men stationed in the operations sector and others secured in the staging area. His confidence yielded to cynicism. Mundy had alluded to Allsworthy's not only being alive, but possessing an unknown power. Yet Han and Mundy possessed an uncanny ability to confabulate. A loud and steady noise shook the concrete as he climbed the ramp near the upper levels. A repetitive cadence of someone barking out amplified orders pierced the stuffy air. Loftus gripped the rifle and stayed along the wall. He peered inside once he reached the freight room's storage door. On the stage, Bathurst soldiers had surrounded Parsons and Isaac Watkins. Both men were kneeling and had their hands clasped over their heads. The dark-eyed, mustached John Garvey jaunted around the stage and wielded a large handgun. Loftus's entire force had fallen to the floor. Mundy, in yellow fatigues, crossed the concrete and scolded Isaac through a handheld amplifier. Your efforts are laughable, General. An angry Isaac looked up. Only one man is in charge. You listen carefully to what the premium mobile has to say. All of you. More men in yellow fatigues with rifles drawn fanned around the cleared debris. The men formed a human corridor across the stage. They saluted as the whining sound of an electric motor grew louder. Loftus hovered at the door as an older, rotund man rolled forward in a large roto chair. His shaven skull reflected the overhead lights. Loftus heard the familiar voice, but stilted and mechanical. Vernon had uncovered the truth. Nathan had indeed survived the Long Beach explosion. You are all prisoners of the realm, and you will be disposed of at my convenience. The next phase will go forward on schedule, and your attempts to disrupt the process have been in vain. You are all powerless against the superior force I will now demonstrate this unalterable fact. Loftus wondered if shooting him would change anything. He jettisoned the plan when the hyperactive Garvey stationed his well-armed men along the wall. From his abdomen, a fearful wave spread through his body. Nathan gestured to his right. Isaac's face tightened and amidst the gasps from the troops, a lanky, green-shelled being stepped onto the stage. Loftus shook his head and his heart pounded. He lifted the clear Bunshock medallion that hung around his own neck. The creature wore a silver battle uniform and had the physique of a bulky basketball player. His blue eyes, laced with a black mesh, formed two bubbles atop of his oversized frog-green head. Slender pink fangs tapered on both sides of his thin burgundy mouth and tiny chin and his smooth skin resembled the outer shell of a watermelon. The creature's high-pitched voice reverberated around the area. I the creod slowly removed a wide gold shell from a side sheath and fired a swift stream of brilliant green energy across some of the attack force. The concrete sparked and shook as Loftus watched his men vanish into a thin layer of gray haze. He set the alien in his rifle sight, but lowered the gun when the creature spoke in a high-pitched broken English. An example of what happens to traitors. Park has made you prisoner. 
seeing Nathan in the roto chair, taxed his reasoning power, but observing a creature from his dreams strained all credulity. Loftus gripped his seemingly primitive rifle and tried to fathom the meaning of his dreams. Was he really Trevor? The alien fired the weapon again. An intense green rim surrounded Isaac's uniform until an even brighter glow faded to a smoldering, granular heap on the concrete. Loftus lifted his rifle to kill the alien, but his head spun, and he fell back against the storage room wall. Trevor followed Anak and Frossel from the dome and down the outside stairs leading to the Green Canal. He was afraid the shrine would break apart as everything rumbled. The Creods would continue to pound the shrine until they destroyed it. He reached the white slab's edge and swiped his hand into the canal. Droplets formed and quickly disappeared into the air. It is not water, said Anark, also touching the surface. Trebor had a simple question as he looked into the pale green sky. Where is Tabunsha? Anak looked at Frossel and shook his head. Trebor ran toward the boat docked at the end of the canal. He kept ahead of the two-man terry but fell when another explosion rocked the slab. From his stomach he gazed up at the solid copper sail, pierced with thousands of tiny holes. As Anak and Frossel approached, Traber balanced along a slim white plank leading to the boat's gritty surface. A boat with no cloth sails cannot move, said Frossel. Maybe it moves differently, Trevor told him. We will move only if we resonate with Tabunsha, said Anik. I do not see Tabunsha, said Trevor. Will I ever see Tabunsha? We must resonate. Another blast hit the shrine and the air grew cool in the shady darkness. The sky's green glow quickly returned. Both Mantari climbed aboard the vessel. The boat bobbed and nudged away from the slab. Again, they dipped their knees and the boat scraped the canal edges, leading to the smooth, boundless green sea. Where does the ocean go? asked Trevor. We have to trust Tabul Shah, said Frossel, now jumping wildly to gain speed. But as he pushed, he slipped and lost his balance. Trevor and Anik rushed across the deck as Frossel flipped over the thick rail. Trevor watched as the green surface silently swallowed up Frossel. Frossel! Frossel! Trevor had seen too much death and destruction to feel the loss. He and Anik quickly accepted Frossel's demise. The boat cleared the slabs at the end of the canal and entered the open ocean. This brilliant green ocean stretched along an infinite white shore to the pale horizon. The surface had no ripples, no tide, and no substance. Trevor stood near the stairway to the lower deck and faced the shrine's blue dome above the slab. The hordes had destroyed his world and all that he knew. Everything existed now only as a dream, something lost to the ages, twisting through his mind. Chapter 37 Loftus opened his eyes in near darkness and stared at the wrinkled concrete ceiling. His head, ribs, and arms ached. He grasped the bunshaft dangling around his neck. Both Deluca and John slept in yellow fatigues on the adjacent bunks. Deluca's fluffy hair flopped across the pillow. Zack, bandaged at the waist, wore his all-of-combat clothes. Loftus smiled when he saw his friend's chest moving. He rolled off the bunk and walked slowly to his son. John's sandy hair was identical in color and texture to his own hair. 
Although the high cheekbones were a trait passed on from Kath, John's firm chin and thin lips, even his straight nose, matched his own countenance. He wanted to hug this young man and tell him the truth. DeLuca's bright blue eyes opened and he grumbled with a smile. Ah, the old loftest luck. Well, we seem to be the only ones with the luck, Frank. Everyone else is probably dead. I thought I had seen it all when they performed that demo in my office, Tommy. Did you see that creature? I did. Scared the pants off me. Right outside the door to this room. Makes sense now how they got the technology. That Creod, Tark, he's a killer. They all are. Creod? asked DeLuca. Is that what they called it? Yeah. Very advanced and evil. The inner vengeance. Cripes, Tommy. We can't stop something like that. Allsworthy said they were gearing up for the next phase, linking all the power grids. It's all over. You have that power and you do whatever the hell you want. Everything with the central feeds and the power, it's all linked. Nathan, I can't believe Nathan is still alive. He's not the same man you and I knew. No, he's not. But at least you don't have to keep blaming yourself for Long Beach. I had that harbor sealed. Somehow Mundy got him out, said DeLuca. That tub of water, I should have plugged him below. Yeah, he got Nathan out on the ferry to Catalina. To his left, two soldiers in yellow fatigues appeared outside the open door as force tubes. They probably screened his conversation with DeLuca. The premium mobium wishes to see Captain Loftus. What does that mean, anyway, the premium mobile? What's known as the main spring, said DeLuca. Loftus nodded and walked to the guards waiting outside the door. You people are starting to piss me off. They pointed their weapons at him and deactivated the lighted tubes. Loftus turned to warn DeLuca about Garvey. Like a dissolving video screen, DeLuca, John, and Zack disappeared. The room props vanished and Loftus stood in a small office about the size of a classroom. Yellow blinds were drawn. The soldiers smiled as Loftus fully grasped the power of these advanced graphics. He wondered what he'd say to Nathan. Any anger would prove useless. Long Beach had ruined his life. Maybe simple answers would suffice. The forward door opened and the electric hum of Nathan's roto chair grew louder. Loftus took one step but the soldiers tensed their rifles. With his hands on his hips, he stared at the bulbous form, once known as David Nathan Osworthy. What about the morality of all this, Nathan? You were a moral man. You were a hero to me and everyone in the country. The voice seemed digitalized and the words rolled into other words. There is nothing more moral, Tom, than what I am doing here at Bathurst right now. I am about to power out all my stations and shut down the other electrical sources on a vast scale. You can't stop it. You'll forgive me if I don't fully grasp what you're saying. I didn't plant Long Beach. The administration did. It was a 
Colbert operation. Loftus stared at the rounded, bald head, remembered Allsworthy's dark-haired crop. Allsworthy's characteristic blue eyes resided within his puffy pink cheeks. Loftus thought back to the younger man in full uniform standing at attention in front of Congress. I don't know how I ended up in the water one of those freak things. One hundred years ago, Baron von Stupin planted a briefcase that should have bumped Hitler to kingdom come. But it was set near a support pole. Hitler was spared. Interesting analogy. King is about to pay dearly for what he ordered, and the country will be better. Listen to yourself. I am stuck inside this mechanical corpse. I don't need lectures. Mundy. Mundy was there. He was one of the first ones in the boat. He pulled you out to the ferry, didn't he? Very good. He moved the oversized chrome chair closer. I am sorry you were not informed. Oh, you are. Another one of your decisions? You seem to know what's best about everything now, don't you, Nathan? The project for sub-atmospheric power was already underway up here. I have been up here for years. But the graphics, what I just witnessed! Loftus shook his head and smiled. That was no service project. Maybe the stuff on the screens, but recreating the entire scene, people and things? The Creod did this. Nathan tilted his head and seemed confused. Loftus knew the name of the alien race. That Creod talk each saved my life. I would not have survived the burns nor the internal injuries. Hun B was working up here too. He knew about Tark's presence on Earth. He kept me alive and flew me up here from Catalina. I would not be alive without either of them. Do you understand all of this? Emotion surged through his gut. Maybe that's it, Nathan. I do understand all of this. And for my own reasons, I'm not awestruck by some creature from another planet. You stood for decency and integrity. You believed in our country and the people of our country. And now you just want to spoon-feed everything to human beings. Human beings, Nathan! Create a facade where there was once choice. Embrace illusions where there was once hard work. This is all fantasy. Yes, I understand it all too well. You will come around because we will win the central peace. Also, Loftus moved closer. What about what you did to me at Long Beach? How do I gain back all the anguish, all the lost time? I am sorry. Priorities take precedence. I'm not joining this little robotic escapade up here. 
Forget it, I'll die first. No. I have made the proper choice for you. You're a close friend. Kathleen Brady. She is being blown up here. Why? You will just have to wait. He pushed a button on the chair and a half a dozen guards appeared in the room. Bring him back with the others. He grabbed Loftus under the arms, but he turned and spoke through gritted teeth. I never took you for a sucker, Nathan. I know about this planetary ocean. I'm assuming it's below the turbo fields. Is that how the Creod got here? Wait. Chair rolled across the tiles. Clear the room. The guard released Loftus and quickly retreated to the corridor. Nathan waited until the door closed and then looked up. Only Tark and I know about the intergalactic passageway. How do you know this? Lucky guess. Their civilization is much older than ours. They live longer lifespans. Much longer. He wants to help humanity. No. He's evil. It's called the inner vengeance. It's a force that dwells within them. They're all killers, evil killers. Are there any more of them on Earth? Look what he's done for me, for all of us. Nathan, think about it. Why? Why is he helping you? I think he wants the control. You can't trust him. I will show you. We will link up. You will see. You can trust him. In the darkened corridor, Frank DeLuca slouched against the adjacent room's yellow-painted wall. John sat reversed on a chair facing Zack on the bed. Six soldiers stood outside the orange security tubes. An older guy with broad shoulders pushed Loftus inside once they had released the tubes. And are you guys real? The crackling fields reactivated. Loftus searched the walls for a screening camera. Or is this just another projection? It's real, Tommy. Nice of you to join us at the Hotel Allsworthy, said DeLooker. Captain, are you all right? Me? I left you bleeding on the floor. Zack shook his head. Bleeding wasn't as bad as it probably looked. Finally, he turned to his son. No one in the room knew John was his son. You look like you're doing all right, John. Well, they've asked me a million questions I couldn't answer. My mother, Zack said, is still in the U.S. No. The premium mobile, as he's now called, is flying her up here. I don't like it. Luca had a more serious look and pointed to the screen. They, uh, they showed us what happened up there in the staging area, that creature. Was that real or was that part of their little show? Unfortunately, he is real. I was up there. Luca walked up to Loftus. Tommy, are you telling me there's an extraterrestrial intelligence here at Bathurst? Yes. Zack's brown eyes focused on him. Loftus thought about all the times he had described the Creods in his dreams. I would say Phil would be very happy to know you're not a loon, Captain. Loftus grinned, and so did DeLuca. Well, don't be so sure about that, said DeLuca. Ha ha. DeLuca put his hand on Loftus's wrist. 
Once we saw that creature, Zack told me about all your dreams. My main concern now is shutting down this place. Loftus saw the strain in John's blue eyes. He crossed the room and sat in the chair across from his son. The urge to tell him the truth grew stronger. I'm sorry about this whole thing, John. I don't think you need to apologize. It's Garvey and Mundy who should be held responsible for this. If I had gone another way, you might still have your cabin. You did what you had to do. Appleton will survive. You grew up in Appleton. Yes, sir. At ease, said Loftus with a wide grin. My mother was right about your optimism or confidence. We're all trapped behind a force field and you're talking about shutting down this place. We will shut it down. We will. And I know about you and Mom. Oh? I know the whole story. Cleaned up version, I guess. Loftus returned his smile, but stared and wondered if John sensed Loftus was his father. My mother, she still loves you. Loftus's throat tightened. You made some hard choices. Mom never held that against you. She blamed herself for not following you. And I blame myself for not going back. Everyone mulling it over and no one doing anything. Listen, I'll come back there. I'm going to rebuild that cabin. I'm going to live life like it should be lived up there. You can count on that. Loftus looked at Zack over his shoulder as John spoke. You know something? I almost believe that you will. Captain, we need to talk. Loftus looked over his shoulder again. I know, Zack. Excuse me, John. Loftus pushed back the chair and followed Zack to the other room. His friend closed the door. Captain, your dreams. Loftus grabbed a pencil and some paper from a side desk. Zack leaned over his shoulder as he began writing. Assume they're screening everything we say, Zack. I must have come here when I was very young. I blotted it out in my mind and then it all started coming back. Bill would never have understood. My last sequence, I went out. Trevor had reached the shrine with the two remaining Mantari. They set sail in a passageway, an ocean, but not composed of water. I believe that passageway is the source of these fields here at Bathurst. Humanity crossing over the galaxy. But they were attacked by these Creods. I don't remember arriving here. Maybe it will all come back, but it's so incredible. Zack picked up the pencil and printed on the paper. Why is the Creod here on Earth? He handed the pencil back to Loftus. I don't know. With all the controlling power sources and manufacturing of reality, he must want to control humanity. The inner vengeance and evil dwells within them. Nathan can't see it because the alien reconstructed his body. He trusts Tark implicitly, but Tark is a cold-blooded killer. Look what he did to Isaac and the others. What can we do? asked Zack. Don't know that either. Maybe there comes a time when you can't do anything. I have the urge to go below, to see if this passageway really exists. Zack held Loftus's arm as he wrote. We have to stop this next phase, stop them from hooking up the power. If we can do that, we have a chance of stopping this creature. Chapter 38 Mundy arrogantly informed him a half an hour ago about the near completion of Phase 1. Five Bathurst soldiers guarded Loftus and Zack in the elevator. Loftus figured they only wanted to humiliate him by bringing him to the operations center. When the door slid apart, he gazed up at the operations center's concrete base. He knew from the original schematics that the maintenance tubes followed the outer rim. The soldiers forced them up the spiral stairs. He and Zack would have to vault the operations center upper rim. 
Next, they would leap into the maintenance tubes and crawl toward the communications room. 52 technicians, according to Monday's count, were busy at their console stations. The global communication and command network appeared in bright colors on the wall screen up front. He checked the indirect white lighting rimming the concrete to the outside wall. Loftus surmised as he studied the personnel that the next phase was indeed underway. Mundy mumbled something about a sequence called the power release. Loftus realized the Bathurst facility would continuously send almost unlimited power to stations around the northern hemisphere. He and Zack were both clear in written communications about sabotaging the prodigious power release. They agreed to meet on one of the lower catwalks above the turbo fields if they became separated or were unsuccessful. I wanted to share this moment of triumph, said Nathan as he rolled in, accompanied by only Mundy and John Garvey. Mundy wore casual light slacks and a jersey, but Garvey remained in his olive uniform. The alien did not accompany them. Whether you join us or not, you are still a witness to history. In less than five minutes, the converters will power release to the satellites and connect all major North American grids to our companies. Zack's grim face reflected Loftus's own emotions. A yellow dot on the screen represented each power station, including the main station at Bathurst Island. Where is Kathleen Grady, Nathan? Nathan rotated his roto chair. She has arrived. She is safe. I would like to see her. In time, Tom. In time. Loftus clenched his fists as he panned the room. Implementing the escape over the rim was a possibility with everyone fixated on the power procedure. Stations from Albuquerque to Bakersfield, Omaha, and other cities reported in across the speaker system. Loftus pictured the massive coils below this complex and the other smaller coils in Appleton. The stations had to be pointing their transmitter dishes to the satellites at this very moment. Despite his anger, he sensed the importance and even respect what they and Tark had done. All stations reporting normal data, said a light-haired technician up front. Reception now at 100%. She faced Nathan and clapped. I have the pleasure to announce to you, Premium Mobile, the linking of all stations. Everyone stood and a thunderous applause broke out across the tower. Loftus and Zack folded their arms in unison. Garvey shouted something about Loftus not clapping, but Loftus just stared at him. The image of Vernon pinned inside Kath's cabin as Garvey fired the rockets, stuck inside his head. Garvey and a gloating Mundy stood at attention as the group assembled around Nathan's chair. Mundy poured champagne into Garvey's glass. Nathan's annoying voice dominated the chatter. This is a great day for mankind. Loftus nodded at Zack, and in unison, both men dove over the rim and quickly rolled over the rail. They leaped onto a solid retaining mezzanine about ten feet below and crawled into the foiled-wrapped ducks. Damn lucky they didn't plug us, said Zack, holding his side. Then the shots ricocheted around the concrete. Let's get to that transmitter and call the outside world. Loftus reached a maintenance ladder, but he heard movement above. 
Obviously, we're not going to stop them, but we can at least get a call out for help. Even if something happens to us, maybe somebody will pick up the transmission. Zack followed him down the metal ladder along the concrete tubes, wires, and pipes. Loftus dropped into a lower corridor. Zack's legs dangled before he leaped. Loftus ducked under the low ceiling and motioned Zack toward a green metal door across the hallway. He opened the door and ran onto an ascending ramp. This should connect us back upstairs. Feel like a rat in a maze, said Zack, jogging alongside. They're not going to be too happy unless they kill us, Captain. You got that right. Are you all right? I'm fine, Captain. Right, sure you are. That room should be right up here. The ramp leveled to a long corridor above the operations center. They ran forward, but several Bathurst guards patrolled the forward hall. He yanked Zack into the first office. The ubiquitous chatter of the ground stations echoed in the room speakers. Loftus dipped his head into the hall. With the outer corridor now empty, he bounded toward the open room at the end of the corridor. Both men checked through an array of screens and readout consoles. Zack quickly rerouted the link and he called out the frequency bands. Okay, Captain, go ahead. It's live to the outside central feeds. Good work, Zack. Loftus leaned toward the speaker. This is a priority request. Bathurst Island, Canada, is being used as an insurgency base against the United States government. This is Captain Thomas B. Loftus. Repeat. This is Captain Thomas B. Loftus. He sensed evil. The air on his arms bristled and his skin grew clammy. Over his shoulder, the massive Tark lowered his huge, tapering green head into the room. His eyes glowed blue below the oblong black mesh. The evil hovered like a jet copter ready to kill. Tark carried no weapon, but he ripped the console with his large appendage like a buzzsaw to wood. Then he stood upright, towering over Loftus by at least a foot. Loftus scrambled with Zack along the wall. Your people destroyed the Mantari on Altashar. Altashar? Its thin little razor mouth and pink fangs retracted. He spoke in a high-pitched but English voice, and Loftus noticed a thin yellow tongue inside his mouth. No one on Mantari Earth knows about Altashar. I know enough. His eyes brightened blue. Sigh. He did not know I had discovered how Inferius had penetrated the surface. His attack continued. Tark believes that you escaped along the passageway. You were in there? Inferior. Loftus, more accustomed to the creature, now did not think he and Zack would die. And you, Tark, are responsible for all these advances. Tark arrived in the last of your centuries. Tark will subvert them into reality chambers. Their lives will be enclosed and enriched from birth to death. They will go willingly. How did you do all this? asked Zack. Tark constructed the power feeds to the Pequa fields. Loftus leaned against the counter and nodded. You have done with your intellect what a hundred cluster ships could not do. Tark will spread Sard's death empire here on distant Mantari Earth. He had to remind himself that he was actually talking to a being from another planet. All Mantari are all inferior. Why are we inferior, and why are you fighting us? Because of the Tabun Shah and the killing of innocent Kriots. 
deadly battles. Tark's people held hostage on the home Erkum by inferiors. The Tabun Shah waged war and then disappeared. With each Erkum we find, we search for the hiding Tabun Shah. Asard would not be as tolerant with your race. There would be no life left on this Erkum. Tark's people value revenge above all else, Loftus. The war is my war. The war is Sard's war. Nathan, over the speakers, linked the Continental Stations to the Bathurst Stations. He turned back to the alien. What are you going to do with us? Why haven't you killed us? Allsworthy wants you working with him. Are you... Are you the Suri of Khan? The what? asked Loftus, his face tightening. The one who was predicted by the ancient Mantari writings. The one to rise and save his people in the Tabun Shah. And if I was, Tark would kill you. Loftus heard someone approach in the corridor. Tark turned as Mundy rounded the corner and pointed a handgun at Loftus. You are my prisoners. Oh, the hell we are. I have the gun, Tom, and I'm not afraid to use it. Not afraid to at all. His anger surged as he stomped past the Creole and slapped the gun from Mundy's hand. Mundy backed to the wall. Kill him, said Tar. Kill him. He is an inferior. He destroyed your military career. Loftus gripped the gun but shook his head. No, I will use him to stop this madness. Only a fool shows mercy. Loyalty is rewarded. Mercy is the sign of a true inferior. Be merciful, said Mundy. Be merciful, Tom. Shut up, Harmon. I intend to deal with you later. Loftus swung the gun around toward the alien. I want this place shut down, Tark. You do not understand, Loftus. Mantari Earth is a Mantari Urkum. If Tark cannot remove the inferiors, he will subdue them. Loftus wondered if a bullet would even kill Tark. Why do you keep referring to Earth as a Mantari planet? They connected their planets by the passageway, said Tark. Bring us back to the tower, said Loftus. This little fiasco is over. It's over, over, said Mundy. Tark reached into a side silver sheath and displayed the same metallic gold shell-shaped weapon that he had used on the troops. He slowly panned it toward Mundy. Mundy's eyes opened wide. We can work out a deal, Tark. You need my knowledge, my expertise in bringing us forward. You are no longer needed. His spindly fingers pressed the weapon's outer edge. The colonel tried to move, but the green glow muted his voice. The bright outline of his form disappeared as he fell to the glossy, dark floor. Is this Creod justice? asked Loftus, lowering Mundy's gun. Never be afraid to kill, or you will be killed. Are we next, Tark? The creature's huge black mesh eyes brightened blue inside as he scanned. He shook his head as if he were human. No, Tark is not sure how he will need you. I still question whether you are the Suryaf Khan. Loftus smiled. I am not. We shall see. Tark will return you with the others. Bathurst soldiers escorted Zack away to the room where they held John, DeLuger, and Kath. The Creod left Loftus in a high, cylindrically concrete room rimmed at the floor with white tube lights. Across the room, the orange sliding doors opened. Nathan and two uniformed soldiers moved forward. You always kept trying, Tom. 
That is what I admired about you, and I still do. Loftus stared at the two glistening weapons pointed at his chest. Then he looked into Nathan's blue eyes. You must be quite pleased with yourself. No, I am grateful things change. We can build a better world. Don't you realize the possibilities, Tom? A blank check to do with what we want. Blank check for what? To manipulate the central feeds? People don't care. For a hundred years, they have just taken what was given to them. I will give them what is best. And you, of course, know what that is. Listen, Nathan, he said, looking around the room for a camera. Don't you think Tark has his own purposes here? He wants to subdue this planet. I am aware of that. He said that just before he killed Mundy. Mundy is dead. Shame on him. He rolled the chair closer. No more barricades in the cities. No more violence. No more starving people. Loftus squatted and looked into his eyes. Nathan, this Creod civilization is ancient. They've been the enemies of the Mantari for eons. You can't trust him. He's given you just a small amount of knowledge, and look what's happened. He has plans for these reality chambers where everyone is trapped in some virtual world. Knowledge needs to come gradually and be judged and honed. You can't trust him. I want you to help me like you used to. Help me implement a new order. Join us. Forget it, said Loftus, and he stood. You will have power over millions. I don't want power over millions. I have made my final offer. Remember that before you go, you had your chance. Loftus turned away. So did you, Nathan. So did you. Chapter 39 Cass sat on the bed with her head positioned against John's shoulder. DeLuca looked up from the chipped wood table and Zack leaned against the window casing. Loftus stepped forward when the soldiers deactivated the orange tubing. The bulky DeLuca stood first. Tommy, I guess you're alive, but who the hell knows with this new technology? Kath opened her glassy eyes, but John spoke first. We thought you were dead. Well, so far I'm not. I don't know what he has in store for us. I don't trust that son of a bitch, said Zack at the window. Well, which one? asked DeLuca. The alien. Kath stared as if they had given her sedatives. I think this electrical grid has been implemented, and I don't think there's much we can do about it. We need to blow this place sky high is what we need to do, Captain, said Zack. Loftus mouthed the words. We wait for an opportunity. Nathan's voice shook the upper speakers. There will be no opportunity. The room shimmied to bits. Even the images of Kath and John dissipated like raindrops in the night. Loftus stood in the dark when he heard Zack's real voice. Captain. Zack? Over here, Captain. Zack's ghostly form approached from behind. Nathan! 
floor assumed a whiter look, and the swirling blue turbo field surrounded him as Zack stopped. Nathan and a half dozen Bathurst soldiers formed a ring along the walkway. How do you like my reality, Tom? Loftus clenched his fists and started forward, but the guards thrust out their rifles, letting me believe I was sharing my feelings with people I cared deeply about. That was a mutually defined reality, I assure you. They are up in the blockhouse room. He glanced into the pinpoint gold light within the infinite blue turbo fields. See what is possible. Please, I want you to work with me again. I want to make up for the pain. Not interested. Tom, you don't understand. This is your last chance. You will be killed if you do not cooperate. Then kill me. I don't want to be around here for your circus. I am sorry. I always respected you. He looked up at the guards and nodded. The soldiers slowly advanced with their weapons thrust forward. Loftus glanced at Zack, but the twinkling magnetic display captivated him. Soldiers forced them to the catwalk's edge, and static crept up his back. Nathan shouted from behind, Throw them over into the abyss. Three soldiers crashed against Loftus's tightened shoulder. He lost his footing as Zack disappeared into the blue haze. The image of Nathan and the soldiers on the walkway blurred as he twisted into an accelerating freefall. Rushing wind pushed back his hair and his eyes watered. He tumbled through the static-filled, gold-punctuated blue glow and prayed for a quick death. His consciousness flickered and he drifted into his own dreams. Trevor rested his folded arms on the ship's railing. A trail of colorful particles swept swiftly out of the copper sail's little holes and formed a stream into the blackness. The ocean glowed green as far as he could see. Dreaming, Trevor? asked Anark from behind. Night falls, but there are no stars. Such beautiful light. Anark put his hand on Trevor's shoulder. I cannot count the number of particles, nor do I know why they glow so brightly in colors. Somehow the ship moves over the ocean as something pushes the particles through the holes. When will we find land? asked Trevor. The strange food we found below won't last forever. I know Tabu Cha will bring us to other worlds. Trevor rested his chin on his arms. I do not want to go back to Althashar. We have a new destiny. I resonate and I know you will see the fruits of victory. He lifted Trevor's clear bunshaft in his weathered hand. The light particles in waves across its reflective surface. This Bunshaf has passed through many ages. My father said the Bunshaf was very important. It is part of your destiny, said Anark. He lowered the Bunshaf back to Trevor's chest. Never let it go. It must stay around your neck all your life. I will never let it go. It is all I have left of my father. Anark put his arm around Trevor's shoulder as Trevor leaned against Anark's chest and closed his tired eyes. He imagined a newer world, dotted with rolling hillsides, flowers and bright green leaf trees. Wide lakes and clear rivers flowed to the sea. 
New villages and new friends would replace the dead world he had forced himself to forget. His memories could fade if he stopped thoughts of Eltashar. He visualized standing on a new planet with a bright yellow sun, with no images of the past, and everything would be all right. Chapter 40 The gold charges darted across the distant blue confines like electrical impulses through a nerve fiber. As he floated downward, he had a growing awareness of a whiter light within a shaded, convoluted boundary. On his wrist comm, the digits still functioned. Forty-five minutes had passed since the Bathurst soldiers forced him and Zack over the catwalk's edge. The silhouetted boundary shaped into blue-tinted, dark rock ledges. He braced his legs as shadows formed within the deep canyon. A wide sloping trail wound upward toward a massive white glow in the distance. Zack positioned himself between two jagged boulders about 200 feet below and faced the glow. Loftus cupped his hands and his voice bounced off the canyon walls. Zack! 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 Zack looked upward and shielded his eyes. Captain! Up here! Up here! Zack ran up the trail. Loftus hit the grainy soil. He staggered, but he remained on his feet. Nice of you to uh, drop in, Captain. Zack pointed up the trail toward the white glow. Something is going on up there with that white light. Loftus pressed his lips. Who knows how deep we are inside the earth. I don't even think they knew we would have floated to the bottom and been able to breathe. Kath and the others, they're up there. So Allsworthy thinks we're dead. I wouldn't take anything for granted, Zack. As far as Nathan is concerned, the fields generate electricity. Again, he wouldn't have thrown us down here unless he thought we'd be killed. Could be 50 miles down, Captain. Loftus looked ahead. That glow is miles away. I have no idea what it could be. We need to get back up to the complex. How? Climb those ledges? I think we need to go up ahead and see what that glow is. Somebody carved out this place. The white glow ahead beckoned. Loftus motioned Zack forward. This way. The flat trail gradually angled upward. Loftus sensed he knew the area as they trudged up the path. He never would have believed his dreams were real if he hadn't seen the Creod. Believing his dreams meant the passageway existed. Like the inside of a transhalogen bulb, charged particles produced a surrounding iridescent globe as the outline of a mammoth structure began to emerge. A convoluted surface swept upward toward a finite green line against the blackness thousands of feet above. Thin fissures spilled cascading green energy that dissipated over sections of smooth white stairs extending infinitely in both directions. I've never seen anything like this. This dwarfs the pyramids. Zack put his hand on his shoulder. Captain, this is our only chance. Loftus experienced waves of disbelief as they approached the bottom of the structure. He placed his boot on the first step and gazed up at the linear monstrosity with its leaking green energy. This is steep, the danger of falling, but I know what's up there. What's up there, Captain? Loftus swallowed and then looked up again. The passageway Tark used to travel to Earth and possibly the way I arrived on Earth. The jagged rocks pierced the upper blue haze and the valley spread out into the blackness below them. Breathing rapidly, Loftus sat next to one of the open fissures. His heart thumped like a well-tuned machine as he pushed his fingers through his sweaty hair. He let the silently flowing energy evaporate over his palm. Each glob, like neon gas in a tube, almost instantly vanished into nothingness. 
Five hours is a long time to be climbing stairs, old buddy. I could use some water. I could use a stiff drink, Captain. Zack's matted hair flopped against his wide forehead. He exhaled quickly. I have to lay off the cigars. I've never seen anything like this. Those mountains, they rise into the haze, but the haze is above the top of these stairs. If we were able to climb up the rocks and back to the catwalk... Captain, I don't know if we're capable of that. You may be right, but if we did, killing Tark has to be our first priority. Kill him and Allsworthy loses all the expertise. Mankind will end up as a joke if we don't stop him. What about this Sard you talked about? I worry about that too. What if he has a fleet headed to Earth to establish his death empire? He stood and gazed over the haze, the mountain valley, and the darkness beyond. From this height, even the trail had vanished. Well, that technology is beyond this brain, Captain. Tark single-handedly built the Bathurst complex, and we don't have handheld energy weapons with that power. Mundy never knew what hit him. Imagine what a fleet of space vessels armed with even more powerful energy weapons could do. Loftus grinned. I understand all that. Before we head up top, if something happens to me and you get back to the complex, make sure I'll get her and the kid out. And Frank, we owe Frank. DeLuca knows how to play the political game no matter where he is. He's probably dealing with them right now. Loftus held his bunch off in both hands. The little glass pyramid maintained a blue glow from the haze above. Over his shoulder, the shadowy stairs tapered to a thin green line still extremely far above them. We'll need water very soon, Captain. Well, let's hope we find it. Eight hours and twenty-one minutes after he placed his boot on the first step, Loftus counted less than twenty steps to the top. The blue fog totally encompassed the valley and the pale green sky above produced an amazing dome above the pastel stairs. Ahead, a flat white slab sloped along a linear surface of the brilliant green sea. Cooler and drier air with a slight breeze swept over the stairs. This is an engineering miracle, Captain. It extends to the horizon through time and space. Incredible. Loftus placed his hands on his hips as he gazed over the green sea. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any a drop to drink. The ancient mariner. Loftus lifted the bunch off and nodded. The white slab connected to the green sea 200 yards ahead. He tucked the bunch off back in his jersey. Let's go down to the edge. His boots gripped tightly to the apparently smooth slab. This structure existed without any seams or joints. Such technological prowess presumed a level of progress beyond his imagination. The energy swashed like a conventional tide over the edge. Unlike a tide's backwash, the green substance vaporized as endless indefinite loops lapped along the shore. Loftus descended to one knee. He scooped his hand into the ethereal mass. This ocean had no weight, a tepid temperature, and instantly disappeared off his hand. He looked up at his friend. Zack thrust both hands into the green nothingness. This makes no sense. That is the understatement of the year, Zacky. Loftus stood. He rubbed his dry tongue over his chafed lips and scanned the thin white slab. Distant bumps along the shore to his left garnered his attention. What the hell is that down there? I hope it's moist. Let's go. 
The tiny outline of the triangular copper sails exactly as in his dreams formed above the ocean horizon. Three boats bobbed in the small canals connected to the main energy body. Zack grabbed his arms. Your dreams. It's no dream, Zack. It's real. A dimensional warp. A wormhole linking planets. You could fall out of this dimension if you went overboard and never come back. Loftus approached along the white bow, half submerged in this velvet sea. White ramps extended down from the bow. As he neared the deck of a vessel replicating the ship in his dreams, Zack approached from behind as Loftus stepped onto the rough surface. He grasped his friend's hand and pulled him aboard. It's like you described it, Tom. He neared an enclosed canopy over the lower stairs. Down below deck, we can gather food from all three boats, bring enough supplies here to get us back to Bathurst. He descended the transparent stairs, ducked his head into the quarters area. Beds and a table abutted a bulging clear vat. Loftus and Zack twisted the circular cover. Inside, an odorless, colorless liquid swished around in the vat. Loftus put his finger in the liquid and then on his tongue. Seems like water to me. Your dreams, did you drink from this, Captain? I don't remember. We can't just drink this. Maybe it's water or maybe not. Loftus retreated under the blue support beam and pulled the long drawer's black handle. Inside, blue and red foil packets were packed tightly. Loftus shrugged his shoulders and retraced his steps. A gooey blue liquid filled another vat across the room. All these provisions available, yet if we take a bite or drink it, it could kill us. Zack raised his thick, bushy brows. I say check the other boats too, Captain. Good idea. Then we'll try and find out where the ledges meet the slab. Loftus stepped toward the red wall cabinets as Zack climbed the stairs. The boat rocked slightly. He grabbed both sides of the cabinet door and jiggled it open. Inside were long silver packets and gold cylindrical canisters. He found a red and blue powder, possibly an additive or a nutrient. Then he closed the cabinet, walked around before he started up the stairs. Once on the deck, he spotted Zack just before he descended below to the second boat's deck. Loftus crossed the ramp, back to the slab. Without an armed force, the odds did not favor them taking the Bathurst complex and killing the formidable Tark. Zack emerged from the deck below on the second boat. He waved and headed down the ramp, but he stumbled. The boat dipped and the energy crept over the bow. As the boat sprang up, Zack fell forward and grabbed both sides of the ramp. The boat nudged forward and the ramp snapped off the slab. Zack! Zack pulled himself from the energy and back into the boat. Loftus sprinted across the slab. He pivoted at the corner and traced its edge, but as Zack stood, the ship lurched toward the open passageway. I don't understand why this thing started moving. Try and stop it. Move the sail, shouted Loftus as he ran alongside the boat. Zack threw his body against the metallic sail, but nothing happened. The thing is solid. Loftus reached the end of the canal before the boat. He ran at a fast clip across the docking slab. As the boat neared the open passageway, Loftus leaped, arms extended over the green energy channel. He caught the boat railing as the boat moved out of the channel. His legs dangled into the energy, but rocking the boat moved it even faster. Give me your hands, Captain. The boat tilted, sending the mass of green energy up to Loftus's neck. Zack clamped his wide hands around Loftus's wrist and pulled tightly as Loftus crawled over the edge. 
Zack released his grip as Loftus rolled over the rail. He quickly leaned over the edge and realized he had almost fallen into oblivion. The boat pitched in a rapid motion, now several hundred yards offshore. It was the rocking. I should have been more careful, said Zack as he followed Loftus up to the stiff mainsail. We're really gaining speed here. Loftus thrust his forearm against what appeared to be a steering rudder, but the rudder held firm. Both men wrapped their hands around the pole and pushed until the pole bent. A very thin trail of minute colored particles now exited the copper sail's pinholes. Loftus banged the rudder with both hands as he peered across the endless green morass. Zack rammed his shoulder against the rudder arm. Then he climbed the footing and pushed on the sail. There has to be a way to stop this thing. Loftus's face contorted as he pulled himself up. With his head, he steered down the length of the gently rocking deck. He stopped and leaned over the rear rail. The luminescent green energy spread like a long bay against the receding white shore's glow. He thought of Kath somewhere above, crossing the dimensional passageway meant they would never return to Bathurst. You better hope those provisions below are for human consumption. He continued to stare at the shore. Through the wooden dale, the sacred river ran. They reached the caverns, measureless to man, and they sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. In midst this tumult, Kubla heard from afar ancestral voices prophesizing war. In the dream, Loftus hears that his Bunshaf is his destiny. Unlike the pure scientific method, something else is operating here, something that can't be seen. And as far as the actions of Osworthy and, and Tark the Creard are emotions of control on dominating humanity. This is not science. It is an intense, illogical hatred of a variation of a race or being. But the intergalactic passageway itself reflects the journal article about controlling unfathomable energy in relationship to the progress of a civilization. As the portion of Sojourn called Desperado ends, Zack and Loftus cross the interdimensional passageway to another world. Join me next time as we listen to the Vargard Empress contained within Sojourn. I'm Robert P. Fitton, flying above the passageways, brilliant energy. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.